The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the podcast. With me, as always, is Seth Barham, ready to go. Yes, sir. And we have another guest host today, our Deputy Director for Strategy, Plans, and Policy, Mr. Kerry Strait. Yes, sir. Thank you for the invite. So today we are going to be talking about operationalizing a strategy. So as a planner, you've aligned your desired ends to their available means through various ways, and you've produced options. You defined your risk, you've defined the trade space, now it's time to put it into action, or what we're going to call today, making your case. We have a great episode lined up with Mr. Jeff Friedman, Esquire, as our guest. Jeff is an extremely accomplished attorney who has participated in a wide array of municipal, professional, and mass tort proceedings. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for being here with us. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. So before we jump in, Jeff, I'd like to give the audience a quick overview of your biography to help set the stage. A graduate of the University of Tennessee and the Cumberland School of Law of Samford University, Jeff has nearly 40 years of trial experience. He was twice recognized by the National Law Journal for top 100 verdicts in America in 2001 and 2004. He's admitted to practice in all state and federal courts, as well as the U.S. 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court. He has been selected as an Alabama super lawyer and is a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates. He's a founding member of and a current officer in the Federal Practice Section of the Alabama Bar Association. Jeff is married to a niece, Friedman, and they are the proud parents of three children and one grandchild. So again, welcome to the, to the podcast, Jeff. Uh, I guess our first question for you will be to, to tell us a little bit how you uh, got to where you are. Thank you, Colonel. Well, you know, I always... Uh, envision myself as a historian. I, I studied history. I wanted to teach history. Uh, couldn't really quite make a living doing that and went to law school and did well enough in law school to get a job at a, a large firm, a hundred some odd lawyer firm. And I worked there um, well for about 15 years. And I, I, I was losing the fire and enthusiasm for what I was doing as a trial lawyer. So I took the bold step in in starting my own firm. And we had just recognized this month our our 25th anniversary of our firm. And we're based here in in Birmingham, Alabama, but practiced throughout the Southeast. And it's been very rewarding. And uh, I'd love to share some um, insight with you as to... uh, my law practice and things I've seen and, and done over the years uh, with a uh, emphasis on, on strategy. You know, as a lawyer, when we go to trial in a case, uh, we, we've been usually working on that case, not for months, but for years. And by the time we get to trial, there's been so much invested in, in, in a particular course and a strategy. And, uh, and, and sometimes you know so much about 
the case and you've invested so much into your strategy, it's hard to be as nimble as you should be because you 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 put so much into your case and uh, uh, I've learned by experience that that's not good. You've got to be able to to get a strategy and um, develop that and and make changes as necessary as it uh, proceeds. Yeah, no, it's great to hear you say that. I think um, I mean confirmation bias sort of comes to mind. You know, in terms of Daniel Kahneman talking about you know. Uh, you know, you develop your strategy, you're developing your approach. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that from, you know, your experience uh, of, of, you know, as being an attorney in terms of developing your strategy. And so, you know, doing that in terms of advancing your client's interests, you know, I assume you sort of develop, you know, sort of an understanding of what their, what those interests are, and then how you go about, you know, I guess, achieving those goals and objectives. Are there any, uh, I guess, examples that you may have that, you know, where, you had to make some pretty significant adjustments as you sort of went from, I guess, the, the day zero of, uh, of your sort of your strategy all the way through, um, you know, putting it years later into practice. Yeah. You, you know, Colonel, the, in presenting a lawsuit, you, you have to obviously be the master of, of the law and the legal issues. And, and by the time you get to trial, those legal issues have been fully developed and the judge ruled on what can go forward and what claims are going to be presented to the jury. And then you have to develop a strategy on how you're going to present your client's case to a jury. And then you, and most importantly, you need to understand who that jury is. So one, one example of that is, uh, if I may uh, go into this story, uh, I had a case years and years ago, over over twenty years ago, and it was a it was a dispute between two um, really large energy producers, and it it had to do with um, a breach of contract and reneging on promises, and the the venue of the case was set in a rural southern town. Um, the company that I was representing was was a large company. Uh, uh, the company, our adversary company, was a huge, huge company, a Fortune 500 company. And both sides, my client side and and the adverse side, had compelling arguments, both legal and factual stories to tell. And the the important thing for me was I wanted to humanize my client, even though they were a company. And I wanted them to, to understand our story and for the jury to relate to us more than they related to the other side. And it occurred to me, uh, we had three, three major firms, one from not far from where the case was pending, but there another firm from Miami and another firm from Washington, D.C. And leading up to the trial, every time we had a hearing, these large firms would have an army of paralegals, clerks, and they'd put out pads of paper and pens, post-it notes, and they'd bring in coolers, and coolers where they have water, and they'd make it everything just as pristine for the other side as possible. And, it, and in trying to develop our strategy, I thought that would be a good opportunity for us to strike a, a, a clear line, a clear distinction in the jurors' minds 
as to who was more lined up with their values and their experiences in this courtroom. The other side that did all that preparation and, and brought all those creature comforts into the courtroom are us. So we decided early on, uh, our adversaries would have a dozen lawyers at the table. We'd have two at our counsel table. We never brought in more than one box of documents at a time. They had mountains of paper and everything. And, um, and we got our jury and our jury was very, very plain, uh, uh, just a, a great mix of, 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 of Southerners, all walks of life, all races, all uh, various, uh, various um, places of employment and various life experiences. But once we started the trial, I explained to the jury, we had a simple story to tell. And at the end, the jury would have to weigh the credibility of each side and they would decide whose story was true and who and, and what claim was wor worthy of belief. And I'll tell you, every day I would be at the court, I'd be the first one in the courtroom and I'd stand up when the jury walked in and they would see the other side there with their out-of-state newspapers with their bottles of water, um, and, and and they just made it so evident to anybody who's paying attention, they they weren't cut from the cut from the same cloth that our jury was or that I was, and in every break I would line up in the hall with the jury to get a drink of water out of a fountain. Matter of fact, there were there were two fountains on the. Um, on the second floor of this courthouse where we tried the case, there's no air conditioning. It was hot. And every day I'd line up at the break with the jury while the other side was in drinking their bottle of water and reading their out-of-state newspapers during the break while the judge while the judge gave us some time off. And these two fountains, uh, interestingly enough, they uh, they go all the way back to segregation where there was one, one water fountain for, for blacks and another fountain for whites. I would I would go to whatever one had the shortest line. And it always makes, as the case went on, I'd usually dribble water down my front of my sport coat, my tie, uh, wash, put, to get a few drops of the water, put it, put it on my hand and, and dot my forehead with it. The case tried very well. Or, or I could see us making a bond with the jury. And our adversaries would speak in flowery language and and would would make arguments that were legally sound but really hard to for a jury to understand so the day came for closing and i tried to verbalize my strategy to the jury and i summarized the evidence and i i got to the point where i addressed our friends from from out of state and I pointed out some of the liberties that they took with the facts and how they talked down to me and to my client throughout the case. And I looked at the jury and paused and turned around and looked at our adversaries and I looked at the jury and I said, how can you really trust these people here? They're too good to even drink the same water out of the water fountains that we've shared for the last two weeks. And I had an elderly black man on the, on the front row of our jury, and he, uh, he nodded his head, and he pointed his finger at me and nodded, and I knew he got it. Because the, these, in the 
in, in the in the South, that kind of elitism and that kind of uh, being too good, uh, that resonates. So we won the case. The jury deliberated for, for half a day. And after the case was over, the jurors, the judge allowed them to talk to us about the case. But they really loved my clients and they, they really liked us. And they and the we could tell and, and they told us we just we just couldn't find for that other side. We just they we just didn't trust them. So anyway, that was that's that's an example out of where where is a close case. Uh, where the facts could have gone either way. Each side had good, legitimate legal arguments to make. Uh, that the jury, as the days went on, we turned a close victory into a landslide, not based necessarily on the facts of the case, but in the, the difference in demeanor and the difference in connection that was made with the jury. And to the day, to this day, even though that was 20 years ago, that was the largest verdict ever rendered in, in that one sleepy little county where there's no air conditioner, uh, no air conditioning, and it's just a, uh, just a wide spot on the road where we had a, uh, a, a really big trial one day. That's an excellent example. I appreciate that, um, you know, about trust. I think, you know, that was really one of the big takeaways from, from hearing you talk about that. You know, you're, you're making that personal connection. You're bridging cultural you know, bias gaps, you know, for your strategy in order to achieve, uh, you know, that sort of that desired end state. Um, if I can just quickly back up and, and sort of, um, you know, you said you had the 25th anniversary for um, your law firm. We'll say quickly, congratulations. Uh, but then I also read in your bio that you've been practicing for 40 years. So what are some of the things in terms of, uh, you know, your personal experiences or um, events that have been formative in your life that sort of kept you in this, uh, you know, in this line of work? Well, you know, I, uh, I grew up, my, my father had died when I was a, uh, a, uh, when I was a really young child, and uh, I never had any uh, lawyers in my family. I, I, I was drawn to the law, and kind of as I was drawn to history, I, uh, I had a a deep appreciation growing up in a small town of, of the lawyers and the judges. And, uh, they were, they were respected. And it was a, it was a different time then. You didn't see lawyers on television or on billboards. And it was a very honorable profession. And I was drawn to that. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so it, it was something I wanted to aspire to. And I, I got to the, the really large firm I was in and I, I tried to, to do a good job there, and I thought I feel like I did. I was involved in hiring and all these different committees, and uh, I produced. They put a lot of emphasis on on production in terms of money you brought in and different things of that nature. And I, I had a, a secretary. As a matter of fact, I've done this for almost right at forty years. I've really only had two two legal secretaries. I've been really, it's really been uh, fascinating. Uh, but my uh, my first secretary who worked with me for for, for twenty years, uh, she was married to a uh, uh, a Baptist minister, and they had they just recently retired. And um, I, I'd finished a big case, and I wanted to give her a bonus. 
uh, and, and kind of helped them. They were they lived in a parsonage and they were wanted to buy a new house. And we we've been blessed and had a great case. And so I I talked to my firm. I wanted to give her a substantial bonus, and I got unbelievable pushback from from senior partners who were making so much money. It was just I, I couldn't even fathom it. And uh, and then he begrudged a secretary. Uh, my secretary getting a bonus, and they finally said, we're just not going to do that. That's a dangerous precedent. If you want to do something on your own, you can take care of your people, but we're, we're just not going to do this. And I, it made me reevaluate my whole connection with my firm, and I said, I thought to myself, you know, I am going to do something about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my own firm and take her with me, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good to people, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to restart my career and and I think make amends would not be the right word, but to to be more connected and to make more of an impact um, in my practice of law in terms of the people I work with and the people I interact with and and not just make it all about a uh, what I saw and what I continue to see in the practice of law is a uh, is a um, dangerous, dangerous trend towards uh, a, a, a monetary incentive, uh, a materialistic incentive uh, versus a, a more honorable incentive to uh, to accomplish things and to help society. I could give you an example of, of, of that if you, if I'm not getting off script. No, here. We'd love that, sir. I actually, this is, uh, this is Seth. Um, so I was going to ask you, and you're leading right into my question. So the Army is, um, is like our first priority of the Army, the Chief Staff of the Army's priorities is, is people, people first. Um, and I was going to ask you, so this is perfect to lead into that, but um, while you're practicing law, how do you leverage people or the, the people domain? And it sounds like you're about to answer that question. So I want thank you for giving me credit for asking it uh, before we went into it. So I appreciate that. Well, fact, listen, thank you for giving me this audience, uh, Seth. I will tell you, I, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. W one of the ways in, a, uh, in, in making connections with people and, 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 and what I believe is doing the right thing, uh, I'll give you a great example, it has to do with a, uh, a case I had years ago. As a matter of fact, like a lot of things, it was born out of a terrible tragedy. There was a, a family that was flying through our, our um, airport here and a uh, unspeakable tragedy happened. It was a family of five. They were flying uh, from Florida, from the Florida Panhandle through Birmingham. They had to change planes and were flying back to Kansas City. And they were, we just done a major renovation of the airport here. And they had these huge flight information displays where you would have uh, a dozen or more huge television monitors uh, set up vertically in a in an oversized monitor. And they had a couple of these. I know you've seen smaller ones, but they had some massive ones uh, at this airport. And the family was trying to make their connection to their flight home, and uh, in the haste to finish the huge 
uh, airport renovation, one of these flight information display panels was not properly anchored. And so as the family stood in the shadow of this flight information display board, uh, one of the children stood up on, on, on a, um, it's almost like a foot ledge to keep people from um, backing in or, or, or uh, getting too near the information display. And when the child stood on that, the entire flight information display that weighed well over a ton and a half came crashing down on the family. Uh, the mother had sustained unbelievable injuries. She had two compound fractures of her legs and a broken hip. Uh, one of the children was uh, put into a coma. Another one uh, had a severe head injury and didn't survive the, uh, the accident. And uh, we all read with horror of what happened. Um, and then weeks passed and I got a call from a really, really good lawyer in Kansas City and uh, he called me at the office and I took his call. He said, Do you, uh, have you heard about this accident? And I said, yes, well, of course. And uh, he said, um, do you know why I'm calling you? And I said, no, but you know, if I could help the family or help you, I'd be interested. He said, it seems like uh, you were the only really good lawyer in Birmingham that didn't try to get this case. And I said, well, I... Uh, you know, that's not my practice to, to try to get cases. I'd be honored to help. So will you fly out and meet this family and um, and uh, talk to them? And, of course, I'm happy to do that, and I met with them. And they they asked me, so what, how, would you, how would you approach this case? Because obviously it's a case of absolute liability. And, you know, it was there's no... No jury that could ever hear the facts of that case that would not uh, try to make this family whole as much as dollars could make a family whole in, in a tragic situation like that. But my view of it was to let's try to do something for good here. And I told them, um, you know, let's let's if you trust me, if you hire me. We will do the best job we can possibly do and work with your lawyers and we we will get you a a big settlement or a big verdict but more than that my goal is to let something good let some kind of message be uh, be told from this terrible story so as the case progressed and we got closer to the trial. The, the contractors and airport and everyone uh, responsible for this uh, wanted a settlement. And we said, well, we just don't want money. We, we've, got to have, we've got to have some public uh, recognition of what's happened. And we've got to come up with something, with a plan to, to make sure a message is sent to the community, to the building trades, to the general contractors, to the airports of the world, that this kind of situation, even though it may have just been pure carelessness, can never happen again. And so before we even talk about money or settlement, we talked about solutions. And finally, we came up with a plan. 
we had every contractor in the case who we believe was responsible. We wanted to see their safety manuals, and we got experts in from out of town, experts, engineers, safety consultants, to basically rewrite their safety manuals. And we took it a step further. When we had our meeting to settle the case in court, we took we made sure the CEOs of, of the companies were there. And we brought a picture of the little boy who died. His name is Luke. We said, we want this little boy's picture on the cover of your safety manuals from this point forward, never to come off. And we want you to rename your safety manuals Luke's Laws. You can imagine corporate types scoffed at that type of thing. We said, well, we, we are not even going to talk settlement until we get these kind of promises and concessions. And when we get those, if we ever get to that point, you can avoid a very public trial. And one by one, each, each contractor agreed. And we had to approve the, the, the safety manuals. And ultimately, we reached a settlement, a very public settlement, admissions of, of guilt. But we also have changed the way these contractors have done business. So fast forward 10 years later, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I settled a, a case and it, it involved the construction of a new water treatment facility. And one of the contractors who was involved in the airport case had bid to, to try to build a new facility. And I told my client going into the meeting, I, I told them, I want you to ask this contractor for a copy of their safety manual. And when they came to the meeting, no one recognized me there, thank goodness, but they brought their safety manuals. And, and, and as you would suspect, they had Luke's picture, this little eight-year-old boy's picture on their safety manual, and it was entitled Luke's Laws, and then it had the name of the contract. And one of the people in the room said, how did you come to, to name your, your safety manual after a little boy. And then they told him the sad story about how Luke and his family, their lives were uh, irrevocably changed because of careless steps and not looking after safety. And the contractor said, we've committed ourselves to never ever letting this happen again. And that's why our safety manuals are called Luke's Laws. And to this day, that's something that came out of a terrible, unspeakable tragedy that left this family devastated. And although they got a large settlement, they were able to do things and send their kids to college. Something good came out of that case in, in that I believe it's got a, it, it resulted in a renewed focus on safety, on precautions, on checking and double checking and triple checking to make sure the public protected. And that's the kind of thing uh, when I walk out of my law office, that last time, whenever that is, and I turn off the light, I'll never think about uh, what money was made or what hours were built and what big cases I got. I will think about the Luke's and Luke's laws and things of that nature uh, where a difference was made.
So, and, and that's a, you know, that's a small way. And some people will, might say, well, you're, you're, you're in these things for the money or you're in it for your reputation. And there, you know, there, there's, there's threads of that. And you hear about attorneys that, that make that their, their life work, but the, the good that can, can come out of these situations is real. If you look for it, pursue it, whether it's giving a bonus to someone who's, who's helped you for years and years, sharing uh, what you've been able to uh, uh, do with people around you, getting a good result for your clients, or, or going further to try to get a result that's going to be good for change for for future. So anyway, that's that's my that's my that's my example. Hey, I love that story, Jeff. Um, when you really break down the essence of leadership, it's all about creating a vision of a world that doesn't exist, and then having the ability to communicate it. And that's what you did with uh, with Luke's Law, and I, and I really love that story. Um, you know, one question, and it kind of gets into leadership, and, you know, you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, one, uh, I think it's uh, Drucker says, you know, culture, each strategy for breakfast, and I know you've, you know, I followed your career over these last 40 years, and that uh, you've developed with, with this law, with your law firm over the last 25 years, a culture of winning and integrity, but also maintaining, you know, job satisfaction and morale within um your law firm. And can you talk a little bit about uh, how you create that culture of, you know, where people are proud to be a part of that organization, you know, and, and you being the, the primary leader of that law firm? You, you know, one thing that, that we look for is we want people who want to be here. And, and, um, you know, we, um, we, the, the old story about uh, uh, commitment, comes to play. It's a, an old story they talk about. If you want to know the difference between uh, commitment and involvement, you need you need to look no further than your 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 breakfast. Um, and I, first time I heard that, I thought, well, wait wait a minute. the The difference between involvement and commitment are no different. Or you have to look no further from than your your your, your breakfast. Uh, and as, as the story goes, yeah, that's true. You you see, because the the egg, the 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 chicken who lays the egg for your scrambled egg is involved in your breakfast, but the pig that provides the bacon is committed. So um, I never so, heard that. I never heard that. That's all. I'm going to use that. You feel free to. I, I you know, as as my law partners and even my family have have said. Uh, I'm a fountain of useless information, but that 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 country breakfast story, it really, when you think about it, uh, we look for lawyers and staff and secretaries and paralegals here who um, who are committed and who are willing to to do extra. My uh, my current secretary, you know, I told you I had two secretaries in 40 years. My my current secretary, her um, she and her her husband had just um, uh, gotten out of uh, um, the United States Air Force, and he 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 came to Birmingham to uh, to work uh, for a company that refurbishes uh, passenger planes, and uh, and she uh, started here as a file clerk. She was so 
so incredibly conscientious putting files together and making sure everything was right. And, you know, when you deal with so much paper and so much digital information and so many exhibits, I, I saw the work that she was doing. I, I asked her if she would like to be a paralegal if we would pay to send her to school. And she said, well, I'd, I'd appreciate that, but I also need to make a living. I said, well, if you go to school half a day and we pay for it, and then you work half a day, and we'll still pay you a, a, a full salary. Would that would that make you would that increase your interest? And she said yes. So she did that, and she she was a great paralegal. Great, uh, always did more. Always not trying to show other people up, but just totally committed. Not involved, but committed. So when my secretary, um, who who was going to retire, I, I went to this this um, woman, I said, could we do the same deal where I send you to secretarial school and we'll pay your full salary, but you could go there two or three hours a, uh, a day? And she said, well, yes, if I'm going to be your secretary. And I said, that's how it's going to be. Interestingly enough, she's been with me for 20 years, raised her family, um, probably, probably the highest paid legal secretary in Alabama, certainly the best. Uh, but we found her and cultivated her from a file clerk who just wanted a part-time job. So you've got to look for talent, yes, and you've got to recognize uh, people who are willing to commit and want to be a part of what you're doing. And we do that same thing with lawyers. Uh, uh, we, we look for uh, the last lawyer that we hired is one as a lawyer, uh, one of 11 children. Uh, uh, unbelievable law student, uh, law, law review editor, uh, and we're we're not a huge firm. Now we compete with firms that have hundreds of people, and uh, I don't think I'm giving away anything and telling you we had to come up with something innovative to to uh, get this particular uh, law student interested in our firm because they they had offered to clerk for federal judges and go to civil stocking firms and go to Los Angeles or New York. How would we ever keep them here? And we just we just said, look, we would like for you to be a part of this firm uh, and retire here someday. And and on faith, if you take our job and you stay here for five years, your all your student loans will be fully repaid. And, and if you, after that, if you want to go somewhere else, you can. That, that's turned out to be a great move. Just kind of being innovative and, and doing things like that has really helped. Um, and, and so uh, I would say uh, to, to in, engender loyalty, you have to be loyal and you have to reciprocate. Uh, and I don't know how that, uh, squares with things in your world like the chain of command. Um, but I do know in, in this day and time of my world that it, it, it's, it's, you can't expect just blind loyalty or blind commitment unless you, uh, you're you willing to go that extra mile yourself. And I will tell you, uh, if I may, I, I may have gone too long and messed up the, uh, the presentation, but I'll give you an example of a uh, of, of, of a case that I had where I had to basically uh, learn how to be, uh, to relearn how to communicate with um, 
young of people if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, so I guess that was <laughs> that's a great that's a great segue. So the question I was going to ask you, so well, so first of all, to to your your point about you know how does that stack up in the military? I think I think it's very much you know very similar to how we define trust. I mean, there's a transaction. You know, it's not just something that you can expect from people. You have to, as a leader, go and earn that. Um, the question I was going to ask you was kind of, you know, do you see kind of any macro trends over about a 40-year period in terms of that, you know, that chicken and pig uh, breakfast, you know, metaphor in terms of how do you, you know, how are you seeing different trends? How are you communicating with those younger generations who may see things just a little bit differently? That's that, that's that's where I'm going with this, as a matter of fact. I, so you as a, as attorney so i'm you know well into my 60s and uh and, and now i see um i i see jurors that have become younger and younger and a a, a judge told me one time he said uh, jeff you don't want to look around one day and be in a courtroom and realize you're the oldest person in the entire room he says when that happens it's probably too late to do anything about it, but you you want to you want to work and 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 learn how to communicate with all levels, uh, not just not just the judge, not just other lawyers, but most importantly your 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 jurors. So I had a case, and it was going to trial out of state in a college town, and it was a it was a huge environmental case, and. Uh, it, 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 it involved one of the largest engineering companies in not just the United States, but in the world. And, uh, and this case was, oh my goodness, was it contentious? And uh, I realized in looking at our demographics for what a jury would look like, you see, uh, in the modern practice of law, you can, you can get statistics on anything. I knew the average age that I could expect for my jurors and that in this particular courthouse, they were going to be on the younger side. They were going to be much more educated because it's a college town. And it was, they were going to be a lot more liberal in their way of thinking and, and, and their approach. And you, so in, in putting together your strategy for something like this, you need to try not only to know your case, but look at it through the prism of how your jury is going to look at the case. So I, the, realizing that I was getting a little long in the tooth, I, I went to class. I, I went to, to study. I, I went to some seminars and tried to learn uh, how to communicate with Generation X and Generation Z and all these different gens that I really may not have focused on before. And I have some important things I learned in that. Were you, were you ever uh, were you ever mistaken as the professor when you walked in? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 one thing for sure, they knew that here's some old guy who's trying to convince me that his client should win this case, and and I wanted to make sure I didn't misstep in doing that. So here's here, here's what I learned: uh, younger people who are used to texting as their main source of communication, they don't like extended eye contact. They don't like people invading their space. They don't like anyone using loud voices. They don't like to see anyone embarrassed. They don't want to see anyone 
put on the spot for no reason. And I realized in all that I was learning, about 90% of the things I do, younger jurors don't like. So I was scared. So I had to, I had to refocus and, 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 and reformat how I was going to try my case. Uh, I would never lift my voice in a loud tone to a, to a juror, uh, excuse me, to a witness, to even an adverse witness, unless I had a good reason to, and the jury was actually rooting for me to, to do that. So if I uh, was, was a little bit uh, forceful with a witness, uh, I made sure the jury understood why that was happening, and they knew it was happening ahead of time, and uh, I was approaching it not to embarrass someone, but to point out the truth. For example, where they had, where they had, we had a document uh, that that completely contradicted something the witness was saying. Before trying to embarrass them with it, I would I would give them every opportunity. I said, "Now you remember, sir, uh, this document from three years ago that says a different thing than you're saying here on the stand." Uh, and then I would uh, I'd look at the judge. I said, Your Honor, may I approach this witness to make sure the jury didn't think I was just going up there in an overly aggressive manner to attack them? And I give them every chance to retract their testimony. And I'd say, So you, today you're saying the sky was blue. And three years ago, closer to the time all this was happening, it was a completely cloudy day. As a matter of fact, it was raining. So how do you justify these two different stories? You can't justify it. One time you had to be right, the other time you had to be wrong. So anyway, but the point being, learning to communicate and, and learning to communicate in a way that was not offensive to, to my audience was, was a key because the other lawyers on the other side of the room didn't go to the same seminars I went to. And they were, they, they were old school and they they um, they would approach the jury and put their hands on the rail of the jury box, which is an absolute no-no. I always stood away from the jury. I didn't make extended eye contact unless the jurors would initiate that. So we had to build a trust and 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 build a, a mechanism for communication. And and I saw them actually warning to me as the case went on and when I cross-examined someone and had to raise my voice and point out, I could see them paying more attention because they knew something good was coming rather than just being a, a boisterous lawyer throughout the entire case. So I, I, I approached the jury on their terms, and that created a pathway for me to communicate in a way that they would accept given their world of instant gratification on Twitter and and texting and not making eye contact and not wanting anybody in their personal space and we won that case by the way uh and, and i think our, our our communication strategy had a lot to do with it. yes sir well we know we only talk about winning strategies on this podcast um <laughs> that's right that's right hey so sir if I could, you've been very great uh you've been very gracious with your time today um if i could just do a real quick recap on our big takeaways from uh, the last 35, 40 minutes. Um, I'd say the first one was we can't be captured by our worldviews. 
That means we got to work to break down our confirmation biases. And then in order to operationalize our strategies, we got to meet people where they are to make those connections, build that trust, and deliver on our desired results. And so we do ask one question of all of our guests, sir. Uh, you know, what book are you reading, fiction, nonfiction, that's been formative that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, I've got two. Uh, and look, I, I, I am a, you know, I am a, an avid historian, and I, I, I'd be remiss if I, I didn't mention books like uh, some of my favorites. Uh, I like all of David McCullough's stuff, and uh, and and certainly Stephen Ambrose, his Undaunted Courage is, is a real favorite of mine, and all the World War II books he wrote. There's a there's an author out of Memphis. His name is Hampton Sides. He wrote Ghost Soldiers, great story about the Tan Death March. And some Alabamians who who were um, who who were survivors of that, and he also wrote um, a, a book about the manhunt for James Earl Ray called Hellhounds on His Tail. But to get to your question about things that I, I'm reading, I finished a book. Actually, read it twice because it was so compelling. Uh, it, it it is a book by Malcolm Gladwell. It involves the Air War College down in in, in Montgomery, Alabama. The name of the book is The Bomber Mafia. And, and that is just such a great um, view of strategy. You see, the uh, the in, in Montgomery at the uh, at the base down there, leading up to World War II, a, a, a strategy was developed to to try to pursue a tactic based on precision bombing, and they thought they could make um, actually save lives and by bombing in precision with technology. And uh, of course, when, when World War II broke out, the technology, the bombing technology that was developed didn't work. And it led to a, um, it led to a, 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 a terrible knee-jerk reaction in, in, in abandoning the, uh, the real precision bombing in favor of carpet bombing. And, and uh, I tell you, the, the thing I, uh, I, I took away from from that book, and I, I highly recommend it. It, it. it talks about how when you invest uh, a lot of time and effort into a set of beliefs, how that uh, you know that it, it makes it very hard to change, and you resist um, um, making uh, subtle uh, adaptations to your strategy. And then when you do change, sometimes it's a, a knee-jerk uh, reaction. Uh, but anyway, you have to read the book for yourself. It's, it's done. A, I don't know how you feel um, about Malcolm Gladwell. I think all of his stuff is very interesting. But now, in later years, he's seen to spend um, more time on history. So Bomber Mafia, I highly recommend it. It's a good, easy read. The other book I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now, my wife bought me the book. It's by Matthew McConaughey. Uh, it's, it's called Green Lights. And one of the things I've taken away from that is he was a big fan of journaling. And, and interestingly enough, I've never admitted this uh, before, and I'm doing it on pocket. I, I try, I've tried to do a journal. There are times in my life when I've gotten away from it, but it, it is a great practice. It helps you keep a um, kind of take inventory of not just what's going on in your life, but about where you're heading and, and what you seek to uh, accomplish. So Matthew McConaughey, uh, his book, and not, and 
interestingly enough, he filmed a filmed a movie in uh, in Alabama this year, and I'm sure that's why my wife uh, bought me that book. But it's an interesting read. I, I thought I thought it was because uh, University of Texas beat Alabama um, as a as a well, as, a, know, ten, as that, a Tennessee uh, graduate. <laughs> yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I'll tell you. So he he flew in for the game, and he could not. Uh, the, the FBO in Tuscaloosa was jammed with traffic, so they they diverted his his private flight to Birmingham, and he, he he they couldn't get transportation, and they just his wife put out on Facebook they really needed to get to the game. They had they were overrun with people trying to help them. Many of them Alabama fans to get into the game, and a complete stranger took he and his wife to the game and got them there by kickoff. And so, yeah, it's that, that southern hospitality. I, well, I think I think his seats were on the upper deck, though, with the, te- the Texas <laughs> band. Last I heard, <laughs> could have, yeah, could have been. But I, listen, I think it was okay with him that given that outcome of that game. That's yeah. right. That's right. Winning oh, matters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's uh, I'm, I'm a huge Gladwell fan, so I definitely going to put uh, Bomber Mafia uh, in the in the kit bag for me. Um, you know, and then you're talking about uh, your journaling and. I think it's Socrates that said, you know, only a well-examined life is worth living. So as a historian, I wasn't sure how far back you were going to go with, uh, with your, with your book recommendations. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, that, yeah, Jeff, I right. really appreciate this. And just to add on to Colonel Lavin's key takeaways, um, one of the many, uh, key takeaways I took from this was, um, you know, whether it was the rural case, uh, the highly educated jury, um, Luke's laws was, that connection trumps perfection, that uh, your ability to connect uh, with the juries, the judge, your clients, you know, somehow develops a, a trust and um, really uh, facilitated some huge successes for you. But I really appreciate all those stories, and I think those will resonate with um, uh, the, the many, many uh, followers we have with this podcast. So thank you very much. We'll give you the last word, Jeff. Well, it's, it's my pleasure, and uh, I will tell you, um, the, sometimes when you work on a case for so long, you put so much of your time and your uh, effort and your, your soul into things, just like developing a strategy for anything, you can, uh, you, you can, you can have what we refer to as, as the curse of knowledge. You, you, you know too much about your subject matter and you, 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 ex, you, you get to expecting things to go exactly as you've studied and as you've prepared. And, and, and sometimes you've got to abandon that strategy. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in the courtroom is a really, really good example. But I will tell you, take just for this last comment I'm going to leave with you. Sometimes you have to have the courage of your conviction. And I, uh, one of the, the largest cases I've ever had involved in an airline crash. It's the last crash, thank goodness, of, of a commuter plane in, in, in this part of the country. And I had the unfortunate task of defending that. And interestingly enough, the only two survivors uh, of, the, of the crash, one was the actual pilot of the plane. He was just devastated by everything that happened. And uh, anyway, we had a, I thought we had a solid case. As a matter of fact, one of the crucial pieces of evidence was a, the Doppler uh, 
film of the radar on, on final approach for this flight that crashed. And the local weatherman uh, and his local television station had, had submitted a what they called a loop of the Doppler on approach and showed our, our plane flying right into a level three plus thunderstorm, which you never do on approach. And we put so much time and effort into that case. I actually got one of the, uh, one of the, um, a matter of fact, a, a former um, Navy Top Gun pilot who was on the uh, team that developed Doppler uh, radar. Uh, he was my expert. And he told me, look, there's no way that this, what they've represented to the FAA and to the public uh, as being Doppler weather happened at that particular time. And I said, well, how can you promise me that? I mean, how, how can we scientifically guarantee that when I try this terrible case? He said, because I found this, this exact loop, this exact weather slide 13 minutes before it was represented to have occurred on, on your pilot's final, fly, final approach to the airport. And so I explained that to the jury. And I got uh, uh, Wayne Sand to, to, to say, what are the probabilities of two different thunderstorms that have that occurring at the same place on the map 13 time, 13 minutes apart? He said, he, he explained, this is like a snowflake landing, two identical snowflakes landing on the head of a pin. It just doesn't happen. Uh, anyway, we had a judge who was very, very skeptical, who was very hard on me during the trial. He, he, he gave uh, the jurors a, the, the impression that he questioned our jury, he questioned our evidence, he questioned our approach to the case, so much so that I had to reconsider what evidence we put on and, and whether or not we were going to go through with our strategy. But I was so convinced that we were right and not just factually right, but morally right and our, our defenses were valid that we, we went forward with our strategy and we won a resounding verdict. And after it was over, I asked this judge, he, he called me aside. He said, that was, that was one of the best cases we've ever had laid out in this federal courthouse. Your experts were, were, were well-prepared and profound and knowledgeable. And I, I'm really happy for you that you won this case. And I said, well, judge, that's interesting because you, uh, if you don't, if, if your honor will let me speak frankly, you have been on my ass for three weeks in front of this jury. And, uh, and, and it was really taking its toll on my client and all of us. He said, look, that's the way I do things. Uh, I just don't want there to be any hint of favoritism. And uh, good for you for having the courage of your conviction and sticking it out. Uh, your client was rewarded. You were rewarded. And uh, when you know you're right, stay the course. Our classic military theorist, Clausewitz, uh, describes strategic leadership in the, in the chaos of combat and the chaos of battle. It's the strategic leader's ability to, to find that one glimmer of light, which is, is, he, is he represented as truth, and then the courage to follow it wherever it may lead. And so it sounds like uh, you, you put those uh, applications in, in, into play. Well, sir, we, you've been very gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I think as uh, 
if we end how uh, Sergeant Barham started, sounds like we just uh, got to the tip of the icebergs. We'll definitely have you back on. Here's some more of these, uh, these great stories. That's great. Look, I, I've enjoyed this uh, more than I could tell you. I'm honored that you would um, find any interest in what I have to say, but uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I look forward to speaking with y'all again. Thank you. Yeah.